Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We're excited about the principles that God has given in his word to help us understand how to grow churches that are active, alive, spiritually vibrant. So as we continue to study, guide us, we pray thee in Christ's name. Amen. First session, we talked about the difference between principles and methods. What's the difference between a principle and a method? Principle is what? Eternal in scope. So it has to apply at all times, and it is universal in, universal in scope and eternal in time. So if it's going to be a principle, you have to be able to apply it all places, all times. A method may be successful in one place, but it's not necessarily successful in another place. We're looking at principles from the book of Acts that enable our churches to rapidly grow for Christ. And we've identified as we've gone through the book of Acts five of those principles. The first is churches grow when they're spiritually renewed. The secondly, churches grow when members are equipped and trained for service. Thirdly, churches grow when there's multifaceted, broad-based outreach. Fourthly, churches grow when there is intentional reaping. And fifthly, churches grow when there's nurture. We spent quite a bit of time on the spiritual foundation. What is revival? How does revival occur? We looked at the renewal of a prayer life in a local congregation and how that occurs. We've talked about the value of prayer. We looked at Jesus' prayer life. We studied the importance of a renewed interest in Bible study and how that renewed interest in Bible study can be uh, manifest, how a leader how a leader can initiate renewed Bible study in a congregation. We talked about witness. So revival occurs when there is renewed prayer, renewed Bible study, renewed witness. As we looked at that, we asked a question. And the question we asked is, what can I do as a church leader, as a pastor, as an elder, as a conference administrator, to foster spiritual revival in a local congregation. When I was pastoring, I pastored for a number of years, we often spent a lot of time with our leadership team. Tini and I would invite them over for Friday nights. We'd study the Bible together. We'd pray together. I would like to ask this question. Which leaders in my church do I need to share my vision with who, are the, who can turn this church around. In every church, there are those five, eight, ten people that are the leading change agents in the church. So I'd always ask myself the question, Lord, who is it that I need to share the vision with? Who is it that I need to broaden the base with? And so we spent time with our leadership team praying. Often we had retreats where we took our people key church people aside to pray, to think, to vision, to dream what God wanted to do. We kept asking ourselves the question, how can we provide a spiritual foundation that'll be the foundation of everything else we do? So revival, churches grow when they're revived. Secondly, churches grow when members are equipped and trained to serve. What is equipping? It's the recognition 
that each believer has been given gifts by God as a means of Christian witness and developing specific initiatives for each church member to discover and use best their gifts for service and ministry. When I stand before a congregation, I say to myself, this congregation is the body of Christ. This congregation is the body of Christ. Every member here has been given some gifts by God. My role as a pastor is to help them release those gifts, discover those gifts, and use those gifts for service. If that congregation is 35 members, every member has been given some gift by God. If that congregation has 100 members, every member has been given gifts by God. Gifts for service that can be released Sometimes you will be incredibly surprised what gifts people have. They are latent within. Tinny was holding a cooking school in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I noticed this woman come in every night. It was a cooking school in a time that was in the winter. And this homeless woman came in. She had a woolen hat, you know, pulled over her head. She looked kind of bizarre, frankly, as she came in. She didn't have enough money to register for the cooking school, so we let her sit there. And I noticed that after the cooking school was over, she would always go to the trash can and look for leftover food that people had thrown in the trash can, put it on her plate and keep piling on her plate, and she'd leave. Held an evangelistic meeting. She came, same homeless woman, sat in the back, you know, and. I didn't think very much of it. She didn't make very many responses. About six months later, I came back to that church. I was at an afternoon meeting, running an afternoon program. And I looked over at the piano, and I saw this woman that I didn't recognize playing the piano beautifully. And I said to the pastor, who is that? And he said, you should know her. She walked into your wife's cooking school with that woolen hat over her head. And I about fell over. This woman was homeless. She had fallen on some hard times. But as a child, evidently, had taken the piano lessons. And those gifts were deeply within her. She continued to come to the Adventist church. She eventually was baptized and became the pianist for the youth department. Every person has gifts within them. They've been given by God. And our role as a pastor, as church leaders, is to recognize that every believer has been given gifts by God as a means of Christian witness. And so my question is that I ask myself, how can I most help members understand what their gifts are, discover their gifts, and provide training for service? Elton Trueblood the great Quaker scholar made this statement. He said, the church of the 21st century will be like a mini-seminary. The church of the 21st century will be like a mini-seminary. Its past will be a dean, and classes will be held for the members to discover service. He said, we've come to the point where no longer the church can be a place where we come on, uh, he was saying Sunday morning, we would say Sabbath morning, to comfort the comfortable and people just sit. I was traveling through Africa, and often in our, my travels, when I travel on representing the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have what we call protocol meetings. So we'll meet vice presidents, or we'll meet heads of state, or leaders of other denominations, and just to share what Adventists are doing. 
I was on the island of Mauritius, and I was invited to come and meet the Archbishop of the Anglican Church. He was the key religious figure on the island. So we went to his palatial estate that is a little different than most Adventist preachers would live in. And uh, I was ushered in through his uh, retinue of people. And finally, we came in and sat in this office, long table, old table, and we sat there. And as we talked, we made friends, and we began to talk. About halfway through the conversation, I said, uh, Mr. Archbishop, can you share with me some of the big challenges that the Anglican Church is facing? And he said, it's interesting that you asked that question. He said, I just was in England, and we met with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and we were looking at all of the challenges our church is facing. He said, the greatest one is our declining membership. He said, you know, in England, many people don't go to church. They're secular. And he said, all over the world, we have a very declining membership. So I was bold enough, and I said to him, well, what do you plan to do about that? What, what do you have any strategies? And he said, we do. He said, here's the conclusion we've come to. We have come to the conclusion that every one of our churches should be a training school for Christian workers. I thought to myself, I wonder where he read that. <laughs> he said, every one of our churches, and he said, we're developing curriculum to equip our members to serve. We recognize that each of our members have different gifts. And I could not believe that I was sitting in the, our, in the bishop's office of the Anglican church. And he said, we recognize that every one of our churches should become like a training school and that our future is to train our members in harmony with their gifts to serve. And I thought to myself, that is Adventist. That's Adventist. Equipping is the recognition that God has given every gifts to every believer and that um, our role as pastors and church leaders is not to necessarily do the work ourselves, but to release the members for their gifts. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, Jesus himself, he himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, don't go over that too quickly. Notice he gave prophet, he gave apostles, that's church leaders, he gave prophets. Prophets are a, profet, are a gift given by Jesus in the church that will remain in the church till he comes. Evangelists is a gift. Notice it says pastors and teachers. The word for and in the Greek language is the word kai, K-A-I, and it is better translated pastors who are teachers. This we call a copulative. A copulative is in the Greek language something that unites two things that are equal or the same. So it doesn't mean pastors or teachers as two separate functions, but it's pastors slash teachers. Pastors that is teachers, pastors who are teachers, or it could be even translated teaching pastors. No comma should be there. So it should say, he gives teaching pastors for or to equip the saints for the work or for their work of ministry. So God gives pastors who are teachers. And these teaching pastors have the job description of teaching the believers so they can accomplish the work of ministry. So it's biblical that the lay people who are believers have a work of ministry and the role of the pastor is to discover that. So we asked the question on the church board, what can we do to establish our church as a mini training school for Christian workers? How can my church have one class after the other? Doesn't necessarily mean that I have classes running every night of the week, but 
All the time I'm thinking, training, equipping, training, equipping, training, equipping. It may be training 10 people to do lay Bible work. It may be training children's ministry leaders who have a vision and a sense that those children are precious of God. Maybe that's their burden. Maybe that's their goal and, and, and they want to lead those kids to Christ. It may be training health workers. To, maybe training a group to do a cooking school. Maybe training a group to do an exercise program. Maybe training a group. But the whole vision, churches grow when members discover their gifts and are equipped to serve. The Apostle Paul encouraged every pastor to equip believers for the work of ministry and service. Churches grow when each member is trained and equipped for service for the kingdom of God. Ministry of Healing, page 149. Let's read it together. Many would be willing to work if they were taught how to begin. They need to be instructed and encouraged. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. So there's a lot of people sitting in the pew they would be willing to get actively involved. They would be willing to serve. They would be willing to become involved if they were taught how to do what? How to begin. So they need to be instructed and encouraged. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. So when you think about your church as a pastor, when you think about your church as a lay leader, you're asking yourself the question, how can my church become a training school for Christian workers? How can my church explode in growth because on a Tuesday night we're training a team to do a cooking school? Maybe the next month on a Wednesday night we're training a small group of lay people to visit inactive a former Adventist. There are some people that have that burden. They really have a burden for former Adventists and inactive Adventists. We provide a training school for them. Sabbath afternoon, two or three classes. Then we launch them. We get them out. We prefer shorter training schools, shorter training classes that get people out quickly. It's not how many certificates you have on the wall. It's what you do for Christ that counts. So our goal is shorter training classes that are tied to action teams. And so how short is short? Short enough to accomplish the job. Um, if I'm training somebody to give Bible studies, we take them through 12 weeks. One class a week, we get them out going to give Bible studies at about week number four or five, but keep them coming back to the class. If we are training people to do a vegetarian nutrition class, we can do that in two sessions. So it depends really, brother, on the, on the class that we are conducting. When we teach people to visit former Adventists, it's a class of about four or five hours. We teach them why people leave the church. We teach them signs that they're going to leave. So we have seminars based on different needs. And um, our great goal and our motto is that everybody cannot do everything, but everybody can do something. Everybody, even, you know, it's amazing. I read a story about Corrie Ten Boom, told a story about her mother. You know, Corrie Ten Boom was in the concentration camps in Germany in World War II. And um, she was released from that concentration camp. Her sister, Betsy, died in Ravensburg, the concentration camp. Corey told about her mother. At the end of Corey's mother's life, she was afflicted. I think it was with arthritis. And, you know, her hands were all gnarled. And, and every day, she, her mother said, take me to the window. And they lived in an apartment in Holland. 
and at a little market square, and they had lived there in this little small village of a few thousand people for years. The Tamboom family, you know, Mr. Tamboom was a watchmaker, and so the Tambooms knew everybody in the village. So they lived in this little market square, and Mrs. Tamboom, at the end of her life, said, take me to the window. And she'd look out the window, and Corey would come and sit next to her, and she'd say, there's Mrs. Vanderhoof. Her son died. Corey, write her a note of encouragement for me. There is Mrs. Slater. I understand they're having a difficult time financially. Go to my savings account. You buy them bread and flour today. Oh, Corey, there is that young man, 19 years old. He's having problems in school. Invite him to dinner for tomorrow night. Old Mrs. Tamboon would sit at that window, looking out at the market square, seeing the needs of people and telling Corey how to meet those needs. And Corey said it was one of the most precious memories of her life. Who would think that that old woman would have any gifts for Jesus at all? But amazing transformation. When I was a young pastor, I was only like 21 years old. First pastoral district, I was an associate pastor. I began to visit on Sabbath afternoons a crippled children's home. And there I met Joan Herman. Joan Herman was paralyzed with bulbar polio when she was in her teens, 17 years old. She was paralyzed from her neck down. She couldn't use her hands. She couldn't button her shirt. She couldn't comb her hair. She couldn't put one bite of food in her mouth. In those days, there was no comprehensive communities for crippled children or teenagers. And she was put in 1948. Oh, I didn't visit her in 1948, but she was, uh, that's when she got polio. Uh, the polio epidemic came through, and she was paralyzed from her neck down. I met her in the 60s, and so she was, got polio when she was 17, and I met her 20 years later than that, and so she was 37, 38 years old when I met her. At 17, she was put in a nursing home with old people. Now, I want you to get this vision, a 17-year-old girl put in a nursing home where people are getting ready to die. Death is all around her. And in that nursing home, she said, look, I have a bright mind. She was brilliant. And all I see is old people dying. She began to dream in her mind of a comprehensive community where there were playgrounds for children in wheelchairs. Where, and we had nothing like that in America at the time in the 40s. And so she began to, to write. She couldn't use her hands. She got a mouth stick. And she would type with her mouth stick. She learned to paint by, they put a um, kind of like a stand above her head. And she put a paintbrush in her mouth. And she would paint with her mouth stick. When I went to visit her on an occasion, she said to me, Mark, would you go to the third drawer in my desk and open it? I opened it. She said, I'm giving 21 Bible studies. I'm giving Bible studies to the nurses. I'm giving Bible studies to the doctors. I have memorized all the Bible texts, but there are the Bible lessons, but I can't correct them. So would you simply read me the question, read me the answers that my students have filled in, and I'll tell you whether they're right or wrong, and you grade the lessons for me. Joan would lay with her back to the bed with her Bible open and turn the pages of the Bible with her tongue. She gave 21 Bible studies. 
she organized a branch Sabbath school in a small church of 20 to 30 people in that hospital and became the leader of that church. I would go into a room similar to this, a little bigger than this, and they would bring in Jimmy, or Jimmy would come in on a board with wheels on it. His legs were gone, but he would pull himself with his hands with the wheels. Doris could not see. She could not talk. She was paralyzed from her neck down, and would sing, but she could hear and would sing a song. You can smile when you can't say a word. You can smile when you cannot be heard. You can smile anytime, anywhere. And I would, uh, and Doris would smile. She could hear. That's all. Felicity would come, and her hands would be all crippled. She had cerebral palsy. Joni had a mission. You, looked at the, you could look at that woman who laid on the bed in an iron lung, and an iron lung is a cylinder, and she could only get out for a few hours a day. And she had 21 Bible studies, led scores of people to Christ. Um, she had some of the leaders in America coming. The vice president of Pan American Airways would fly his helicopter, land on the roof at times, and come. When she died, the vice president of Pan American Airways called me and he said to me, Mark, if you'll go to New York City, because she was in Tennessee by this time, he said, I'll have a private jet with you and I'll be in that jet and I'll pick you up in New York City and I'll fly you to preach the funeral sermon. So he did. He did. He flew me to preach the funeral sermon. Um, I sat in the cockpit and we flew into Washington, D.C. to let some of the one diplomat off or somebody else off. But this woman who you looked out and you said, what gifts does she have? powerful witness for Christ. When you look over your congregation, do not underestimate anybody. Children, adults, the teenager who sits in the back talking, the elderly people. Many would be willing to work if they were taught how to what? Begin. Now here's a vital principle. It is not biblical to organize your church around spiritual gifts. I had a pastor call me one time. He said, Pastor Mark, I just had somebody come to my church. They taught on spiritual gifts. We have 28 gifts in our church, but I'm so frustrated I don't know what to do. Take your Bible, please. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. You do not organize your church around spiritual gifts. You organize your church around ministries. And when you develop ministries, the Holy Spirit impresses people with those gifts to become part of those ministries. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We help people discover their gifts. We help to equip them and train them to use their gifts. But the organizational structure of the church is never around gift clusters. It's always around ministry clusters. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Three things. Starting with verse 4, reading verse 4, 5, and 6. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. So there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are differences of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. So you have three things, gifts, ministries, and activities. A spiritual gift is a divinely given quality by God to each believer to enable them to witness for Christ and to grow in their spiritual life. That's a spiritual gift. A ministry is a general broad area where they find expression for their gift. Inactivity is a specific area in which they perform their gift. For example, a person might have the gift of teaching. That gift of teaching, and they have a background in health. That gift of teaching is, finds expression in a health ministry. But the activity might be a cooking school. So the ministry is a broad-based ministry. 
a person may have a very compassionate heart. They may have been given that gift of compassion by God. But they may find their ministry might end up being a ministry for former Adventists. Their activity might be the visitation that occurs within the context of the ministry. A person might have a compassionate heart, and they may have a real love for young people. They may find their ministry in working for Pathfinders. So there's, there's, our role is to let people know God has given you gifts. You have a gift of service. He hasn't brought you to the church to sit in a comfortable pew. Everybody has some ministry. Everybody has some gift. When you become part of this church, you have a gift, and we ask you to begin to pray that God will lead you into some ministry. Everybody has a ministry in the church. I don't know what your ministry is going to be. It might be God has given you the gift of a compassionate heart. Your ministry might be a ministry of letter writing to shut-ins. Your ministry might be a ministry of uh, a burden for young people. But no Christian has not been given gifts. And if gifts are for ministries, then every Christian who's been given a gift has been given that gift for a particular reason, for ministry. Wouldn't it be an exciting thing if every Adventist church was a praying church, interceding for others? Wouldn't it be an exciting thing if every Adventist church was a church where people were studying the Bible in small groups, where they had burden for witness, where the church was a training school for Christian workers and they were being equipped and trained for serve, and every member recognized that they had been gifts, given gifts by God? And as they were given gifts by God, they were now actively involved in some ministry for Christ. What a church that would be. You think that would be a growing church? It sure would. When church members are equipped to serve, and as they form small groups to reach out in their community in Bible-based ministries, the church will explode in growth. Evangelism, page 115. In our, companies, in our churches, let companies be formed for service. What's another name for companies? What is that? Small groups. So how do we organize these small groups? As people discover their gifts, we call them task groups or ministry groups. It says, let's companies be formed for what? Service. So people become involved in various action small groups. They become involved in various ministry groups. It can be a health ministry group. It can be a youth ministry group. It can be a hospitality ministry group. It can be a Bible study ministry group, a literature ministry group, a youth ministry group. So the whole goal is to help people be, discover the gifts that God has given them and become actively involved in service. So a revived church filled with members who are equipped to witness is a church that's ready to reach its community. So when we look at these great principles of church growth, the first principle is churches grow when they're revived. Second principle is churches grow when members are equipped and trained for service. And we're asking ourselves the question, what can I do to make my church an evangelistic training school? If I'm a conference official, how can I look at my conference and say, Lord, what training programs can I do to help members discover their gifts for service? Key three is community outreach. The the more multifaceted outreach you have in the community, the more you're going to win people for Christ. A pastor says, Pastor Mark, my church is not growing. I say to him, show me your strategic plan that is written out to reach your community. Well, Pastor, I, 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 what did you say? Show me your strategic plan. What community outreach do you have planned? Yes, yeah, sure. Yes. What is the easiest way to have members find their gifts? 
there are two things that I recommend. Some people like to use spiritual gifts, tests, etc. I'm not great for that. I have no, nothing against it. But you know what the interesting thing for me is? There were no spiritual gifts in the New Test, gift test in the New Testament, yet people discovered their gifts. And they were, the church was exploding in growth. So if a person wants to use a spiritual gifts test, that's fine for me. But I, to me, they're a little bit subjective. And so this is what we have found is helpful. Setting a climate in the church for witness and evangelism and developing and beginning to preach on the fact that the Holy Spirit has given you gifts and sharing from the pulpit the biblical theology of spiritual gifts. That begins to provide an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to reignite the fact in a person's mind that they have been given gifts by God. Secondly, to establish various training programs in the local church and to, and to encourage people to pray that God will allow them to use their gifts and attend those training programs as he impresses them. So I, so I, I openly say to the church, look, everybody's not going to have gifts in everything. Some of you, God's going to give a burden to reach former Adventists. Some of you going to have a burden to give out literature. Some of you are going to have a burden to... to reach the community through health ministry. Some of you are going to have a real burden to give Bible studies. God's going to lay on your heart different burdens. My goal as a pastor is to provide training programs for you. And you may feel you have the gift of helps. You can get involved in a health ministry. You say, I have no background at all. No, but you can help prepare the food. You can help clean up after. Um, my wife has a huge team that's working to do what you see done every night here. They're working behind the scenes, and they're working now at the Forest Lake Church. She'll have person after person after person coming there. They're expressing their gifts, and we get this team together before every meeting, and we pray together. We've got videographers who work on the visual aids. God's given them unusual gifts. I've got people that work on my uh, graphics. We get that team together, but everybody feels they're part of something. They're not just hanging out here someplace, going to church, but they're using the gifts, the talents, the skills that God has given them. You've got many young people that have computer gifts. You can integrate them into the structure of the church, but it's mission with a purpose. So to answer your question, we begin to preach about spiritual gifts, we heighten the awareness, we run training programs in our local church, and we organize the ministries. And when you organize the ministries, people get actively involved in those ministries. Outreach. Once a church is spiritually revived, once a church understands its gifts, then we begin broadening the base in the community. Our goal is broad-based community outreach. Community outreach is the development of Christian community within the fellowship of believers that leads to a caring, loving, multifaceted outreach to meet the needs of the community in Jesus' name. What we like to do is develop the sense of community that we're a family, that, that our church is the body of Christ, that God has put us in this church for a reason, that we have a community of believers, and we have a responsibility to reach out in caring, loving, multifaceted outreach to meet the needs of the community in Jesus' name. Everybody can do something for Jesus. And so here is the way, if I were diagramming it, I would diagram it this way. This is the church. Okay, we put a cross on it, just so you know. This is the church. Each member of the church 
has been given gifts by God, every single member. The circle, outside of this circle, out here, is the community. Though this community has different needs. Some of this community has emotional needs, and their families are in conflict. They have family conflict. Many people in this community have health needs. They need to lose weight. They have the problem of obesity. Some of them need to get on a better diet. Some of them need to be part of an exercise program. They have a variety of health needs. There are some people in this community that have overtly spiritual needs. That's the point of interest for them, in fact. They may be interested in prophecy. They may be interested in Bible study. There are some people in this community that have a longing for fellowship and friendship. So out here, outside the circle, is many, many, many needs. The church is a training school for Christian workers, and according to Ephesians 4, 8 through 12, our role is to help people understand the gifts that God has given them and to reach out to the community. So the church is not merely a community of faithful believers that comes every Sabbath to escape from this world around it. The church is not merely a community of believers who says this is our fortress and every Sabbath we're running to escape the world. The church members come to be inspired to serve, equipped to serve, and trained to serve. So out of this larger church, still within the circle, we have small groups. And these small groups are being trained to serve. They have different gifts. Maybe this is a health ministry group. Maybe over here there is a group that's working for families. Maybe over here there is a Bible study group or a prophecy group. Maybe over here there is a group that's ministering particularly to youth, maybe the youth of our church, but it's a, it's, it's a youth group. So what we're doing is organizing these different groups. The groups then, so the, here these groups are discovering their gifts, developing their ministries to be focused on specific activities. We call these lines that I'm drawing now pathways. We call them pathways to the community. These are pathways. The fewer pathways your church has to the community, the fewer people you're going to reach in the community. So the goal of the pastor is to lead his church into spiritual renewal so they have a burden for their community that if this church is praying and seeking God, its members are becoming involved in small companies or small groups that reach out. This may be a literature ministry group. You may have a group that um, is involved in reaching former SDAs. You may have a youth group 
You may have a health group, but a community with needs, a church that is discovering, members are discovering their gifts, pastor is equipping and training, or he's providing equipping and training because the pastor is not going to be skilled in everything. So he's looking to the conference, looking to other pastors that can help to resource. So the pastor becomes the CEO. He becomes the spiritual leader, administrator. He becomes the dean of this theological seminary. He becomes the one who helps. The more pathways you have going out to the community, the more people you're going to win for Christ. Some churches have few or no pathways into the community at all. And so as the result of that, their growth is extremely slow. Churches grow when there's a planned process of community outreach, meeting the physical, mental, social, and spiritual needs of the church. Here is what we suggest, that if you take the attendance of a given church, whatever the attendance is, let's suppose your membership is 400 and your church attendance is 200. In North America, typically, the attendance of a local congregation is 45 to 50 percent of the book membership of that congregation. That's what it is in North America, usually. So let's suppose you have a church of 400 members and your attendance is 200, or you have a church of 100 members, your attendance is 50. Here's what we recommend. That you prayerfully set a strategic goal of contacting in the community and getting them in your ministry stream four times as many members as you have actively attending on Sabbath morning in one year, okay? So if I have a church of 75 members and I have 35 to 40 attending, I would want that year a reasonable prayerful objective of having about 160 non-Adventists that we're touching in some of our programs. That may be in a Bible study program. That may be, in a, um, may be in a prophecy program. It may be in health programs. Now, if you feel that is too ambitious, cut it down. That, artif- that figure that I gave you is artificial. If that's too ambitious for you, cut it down. Say, we'll have twice as many or three times as many. Start someplace. But set some strategic objective, some strategic objective that you can have. Um, Don't make it like the Sunday school that said, attendance last week, 32, goal, 1,000. I mean, it's totally unrealistic, totally unrealistic. Goals help us to lift our mind from the mud below to the heavens above. I never set goals based on what God can do, but I do set goals based on what we can accomplish. So personally, I do not set baptismal goals. Now, I know that many administrators are nervous with me about that, but we baptize probably more than the administrators that are nervous. <laughs> you just, you get, because I have this belief, and you may say that's strange to you, Pastor, and that's fine, you can think that. If I set a baptismal goal, I may manipulate people for my own ego, and I don't want to do that. So I leave the number of people we baptize with God. Because of the fact that only God can convert the heart, I can't do that. But I can set a goal in my mind that I'm going to train 10 lay Bible workers. I can set that goal in my mind. I can set a goal in my mind that we're going to launch so many health programs. Are you with me in this one? 
if we are faithful to do what God called us to do, we can leave the results with God. I never worry about success. Recently, somebody talked about a particular evangelistic meeting, and they said, oh, that meeting was a disaster. I didn't happen to hold the meeting. But they said that was a disaster. My comment was, wait a minute, what are you saying? There were, the evangelist preached. There were people that were praying. There were lay people that were sacrificing. How do you know it was a disaster? You baptize one apostle Paul and it changes the whole world. We think humanly. We think humanly. You know, God condemned Israel for numbering Israel. God condemned Israel for numbering Israel. So if we are faithful and do the work of God, my goal is not success. My goal is faithfulness. Because I know that if I am faithful, God's going to give us success. God is going to bless us. So we set goals, not in what God can do, but what we can do. So we set goals in things like we want to try to train 10 lay people in our church. We want to have this many cooking schools this year. We want to have this many health outreaches this year. We want to get people involved in working for former Adventists this year. So we try to set a strategic plan so that we're reaching out to the community in a broad-based way. And if you contact enough people if members are being trained, if this church is being revived, if you have pathways out into the community, God is going to give you. And this is what happens. This is what happens. The first year you're working with this strategy, and it starts small. And you've got maybe, I remember I had a 28-member church. And I didn't understand everything I'm telling you now. This was many years ago, and it's taking me years in my mind to think and pray. But I don't understand all this. But we had a little church, and we began to reach out with these ways, pathways into the community pathways into the community. And as we did, the first year, we might have had 50 non-Adventists in our stream, but they became part of our mailing list. We mailed to them the next year. The next year, you pick up another 60, 70, and you're there three, four, five years, and you have three, four, five hundred people that you're working with in an amazing way. Remember those years, Patty, back in Burbank? Those were amazing years. Um, Patty became an Adventist back then, and uh, uh, why don't you just come up here for a minute, Patty, and help me, okay? And we'll tell a little bit about your journey with the Lord. It was just an amazing journey. And this young lady, I'll tell you, has raised some wonderful children, and she's just a great blessing for Jesus. And uh, what was your first contact with Seventh-day Adventist? Well, How, isn't, isn't, isn't God incredible? I mean, it is, thank you so much, Patty. I just really appreciate it. It's just amazing. Here's a young woman, single mom, looking in her life for something meaningful, walks, goes, walks into a mall, God directs, she's working in the mall, God directs a young man into the store that she's working in. Three times the Lord impresses her. She has been studying health and prophecy. He brings her to a meeting on a Wednesday night where we're reaching out to the community. We had in that, those years maybe 40 members in our church, and every Wednesday night at our meetings we'd have 50, 60 people, 70 people, I think we baptized 28 young couples in that church between 25 and 35 years old, if I counted them up over the years. It was amazing. They're all over the place today. But Patty walked in, and the first thing she saw was teeny up there, granola bread. And she's thinking, wow! You know, and then God leads. So when you reach out into the community, here's what you do you provide opportunities for the Holy Spirit to bring patties to your meetings. That's what you do. If you're not reaching out at all, you're denying the Holy Spirit the opportunity to find those people. What does Scripture say? 
What does Ellen White say? Acts the Apostles, about page 109 or that area. She's commenting on the Ethiopian, and she says, all over the world, men and women are looking wistfully to heaven with cries and tears going up to heaven. And then she says, many are on the what? Verge of the kingdom, waiting to be gathered in. Where are they? They're on what? But if my church becomes, you know, Pierre Barton was an atheist, an English atheist. And Barton wrote a book called The Comfortable Pew. And Barton said, I am really not against going to church. It's the best place to go on a Sunday morning after you've been out all night and are drunk on, after you've been all night Saturday night. Because there's no better place to sleep than a comfortable pew in a boring church with a boring preacher. So he wrote the book, The Comfortable Pew. In other words, he said, what the real church has become is a institution to comfort the comfortable. I long for Adventist churches that have a vision, a vision that God has put them in that community, a vision to reach out for Christ, a vision to do something for Jesus. When you have broad-based community outreach, you provide the, opportun the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do something. Look, Matthew 4, verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. He went about all Galilee. Jesus did not gather the disciples and take them to the Mount of Olives and establish a training school for the three and a half years of his ministry and stay there, did he? What did Jesus say? Come and follow me. And he led them down the dusty streets of Galilee, and he led them down the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem. And they watched Jesus do his medical missionary work, and their hearts were touched. Jesus taught them as they went. Jesus was his own school. Jesus was his own seminary. And I really appeal to our folk at the seminary, I appeal to our folk at the self-supporting institutions, that whatever training we give, we want to be sure we have active community programs so our students see, not only learn by intellect. That's why here, when I was asked to come and speak, we talked to Cotty. We said, look, let's open up. And she said, Pastor Mark, let's open up in the community, invite people in. And isn't it exciting what's happening in the evenings here? People are coming. They're being touched by the Spirit of God. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing the sickness of all kinds of disease among the people. So Jesus taught mental health, preached spiritual health, healed physical health. So Jesus combined, he was the great medical missionary. Following the Savior's example, the New Testament church met the needs of people in Jesus' name. These early disciples demonstrated a concern for the entire person, physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually. You look at Acts chapter 7. They were concerned about the widows. The widows hadn't eaten well. They were concerned. Do you know, remember the story about the demoniac? The Bible says that the demon was delivered out of the demoniac, but he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Do you remember the next word? Clothed. Clothed. The demoniac came to Jesus naked, and Jesus put some clothes on him. Jesus was concerned about that young man. He was concerned about him specifically. Ministry of Healing, page 143. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. I want true success, don't you? Not false success that's based on the temporary euphoria of emotional excitement. I want true success. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. You know, most people in our world desire their own good, not another person's good. 
Somebody said anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. Anybody wrapped up in themselves is a very small package. Jesus was a people person. When you were with Jesus, you knew that he had your interest in view. He wasn't egotistical. He wasn't self-centered. He was not simply interested in himself. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs. He won their confidence, and then he followed, said, follow me. Here's what happened. Here's the sequence. If you want to win souls, you've got to mingle with people. If you are so pure that you can't touch anybody else or mingle with sinners, then as the result of that, you're not going to win many people. Jesus mingled with people. He desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He was really concerned for them. Where they had needs, Jesus ministered to their needs. And then he won their confidence. And then Jesus said, follow me, follow me. That's, those are the steps in true success. We mingle with people. We show our concern for them. We try to minister to their needs. But I need to notice the, the, the um, won their confidence. There is a sentence after won their confidence. There are some people that say, yeah, let's mingle with people. Let's not be concerned about their salvation. Let's show sympathy for them. Let's minister to their needs. Let's win their confidence. Our goal in health ministry is not to give people seven more years of life so that they can sin for seven more years, so they can burn longer in the lake of fire. I've had people say to me, what about the statements in Ellen White where she talks about disinterested benevolence? I've looked up every one of those statements. There are about seven of them if you factor them out. And the statements on disinterested benevolence never mean one time that you're not interested in the soul of the person. They mean you're not interested in financial or personal gain for yourself. So disinterested benevolence is a kindness that reaches out to another, not interested in what I get in return. But it has, no, it, but it has nothing to do with not being interested in their soul. There are two things to remember. One is that if you don't introduce the spiritual in your health programming, you do not provide people adequate power to change. If you do not introduce Jesus Christ in the spiritual, scientific studies in the last 15 years indicate that when people have stronger faith, it is more transformational in their lifestyle. What if there was a cure for cancer that a doctor withheld because he felt that his patient would not want to receive it? He could be sued for medical malpractice. If you know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and you present a health program and you have no interest in the spiritual and the person, in heaven's court you may be sued for spiritual malpractice. You see, because it becomes incredibly important. I don't mean in every nutrition class we preach a sermon, but I will tell you, in every nutrition class we add spiritual. If we're just doing a nutrition class, Tina will be making bread, and she'll say something like this. She'll say, you know, when I make this bread, it looks so fresh, and I think of what the Bible says about Jesus being the bread of life. You know, we'll talk about, we, open, we talk about who we are. We are spiritual people. We can't we can't divide who we are. We don't, when we're in health programs and in secular audiences, we don't so-called so force it upon them and put pressure on others. But every time we have a health program, we do mention spiritual things. And at the end of the health program, we, pro we provide a sheet for them that they can check of other programs they want to come to. And we always put Bible studies on that sheet. And we always put evangelistic meetings on that sheet. We don't say evangelistic meetings. We'll say studies in prophecy. But 25% of those people that come through our health programs will check something that is spiritual that they want to keep attending. So 
we give them that opportunity. We don't force it upon them, but we certainly give them that opportunity. Jesus said, follow me. Growing churches have a variety of programs that meet the needs of varied people groups. Just as Jesus met the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs of, pe of his people, filled with his, people filled with his love, do the same. So what is the church? The church is the arena of God's grace with members that are being gifted to serve. We're reaching out to reach people in the community, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Let's look at our three keys so far. Key number one is churches grow when they're revived. Key number two is churches grow when members are equipped to serve. Church. Key number three is churches grow when broad-based community outreach. Churches grow when there is intentional reaping. You can have a lot of activity. George Ordean wrote a book called The Activity Trap. The Activity Trap. And he said many churches go through excessive activity, but they have little results because they keep their wheels spinning, but they accomplish very little. Without intentional reaping, an intentional plant or reaping, we grow very little. Reaping is the proclamation of the gospel, either privately from house to house or publicly to impact the largest number of people possible to accept Jesus and his truth. We encourage our people that God has called them to be more than health educators. God has called them to be witnesses for his kingdom and that we're looking for opportunities in every way possible, privately, publicly, to lead people to Jesus Christ. The New Testament church placed priority on evangelism. They confidently shared God's word. Let's look at a few texts. If you have your Bibles, please take them. Turn, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll look at a few texts. Acts, chapter 4. And we'll look there at Acts 4, and let your eyes drop down in Acts 4, verse 31. Acts 4 and verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Their witness was not a silent witness. You look at the book of Acts. They're preaching the word of God. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So there is active verbal proclamation that's taking place. Acts 5, verse 42, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus. So they were preaching Jesus. They were teaching Jesus. Acts 20 and verse 20. And you find it all the way through the book of Acts. There is the proclamation of the word of God. Any church whose members are not out witnessing giving Bible studies, friendship alone is not going to grow that church. Oh, you may, if you have a warm, loving church, sure, your church is not going to grow if it's not warm and loving. But if you have a warm and loving church, you may attract Adventists in the area because they... Uh, want to go to a church that's different from some of the others, but if you want to really make an impact on the community, look, Acts 20, verse 20. And I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. I taught you publicly, house to house. This is what we call 2020 vision. You know, 2020 vision, have you clear vision? So 2020 vision in evangelism is you're teaching publicly and you're teaching house 
to house. The New Testament Christian Church placed priority on evangelism. We recommend that every church have some kind of public evangelistic outreach. It doesn't have to be a three-week evangelistic series. It could be an eight-night series. It could be a 12-night series. It could be five-weekend series through the year. But that every church, every 12 to 18 months, we prefer it every calendar year, has some intentional reaping series that is taking place that's in harmony with that church. Sometime when the gospel is preached. Sometime when hearts and minds of men and women have an opportunity to make a decision for Christ. Can you imagine this kind of a church? Members are praying. Prayer groups are taking place all through that congregation. Small Bible study groups are taking place during the week. Members are witnessing and sharing with their work friends about Jesus. They've been equipped and trained to serve. The church has become a training school for our Christian workers. And some of them are involved in visiting former Adventists. Some of them are giving out literature. Some of them are involved in, with young people. Some of them are involved actively in a variety of health ministries and family life ministries. There is active community involvement. There's a biblical series held at the church, and people are invited to attend it. They attend with their friends. And as they do, their hearts are touched, and their lives are changed, and they're transformed by the grace of Christ. Acts 4.31, we looked at it. They spoke the word of God with boldness. Daily in the temple in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You, it's undeniable in the book of Acts that the New Testament church preached Christ and invited people to become part of Christian faith. In more than 35 instances in the book of Acts, evangelistic proclamation is the, at the heart of the rapid growth of the church. There are churches today that become more like social country clubs that say that all we're called to do is be warm, loving, and friendly. That's a denial of reality in Acts. The book of Acts was making an impact in the community, and in more than 35 instances in the book of Acts, evangelistic proclamation is at the heart of the rapid growth of the church. Does God call, Christ call us to be loving, warm, and friendly? Absolutely. Some churches are so cold you could skate down the center aisle with your ice skates. Um, God has called a church that knows him and loves him to reach out with his grace. But warmth, love, and friendship does not deny the reality of the fact that if the church is going to grow, it takes the proclamation of the gospel. Churches grow when God's word is preached through evangelistic proclamation. Evangelistic churches are growing churches. They, the preached word of God transforms lives. Preaching, evangelistic preaching changes lives. One of the examples of that was out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, that's Brazil, incidentally. Yeah, it is Brazil. Yeah. Um, you were there. You were in my meeting. You were in the meeting there. Yeah, yeah. We preached God's word. I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, a friend of mine took over a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He grew that church from 150 members to 750 to 800 members. An Anglo church in North America. He followed many of these principles, but one thing he did, which is very unusual, and I don't recommend that every pastor do this. This is a method, but I want to share with you what he did. He held probably four or five evangelistic meetings in his church every year. I mean, that to me is overkill. And, but this is the way he did it. He said to his members, I don't want you to come to every meeting, and you don't have to. You don't have to. But what I want you to do is choose one a year to come to. 
I will hold five meetings a year in the church, three weeks at a time. They will be more like Revelation seminars than preaching. I'll hold them in small rooms like this. I will we'll advertise in the community, and our members will bring people. You will know that every other month there will be a series going like this. In addition to that, this church, you know, you drive up to the parking lot, and they have parking attendants in the parking lot that will greet you. They have a catered lunch every single Sabbath where anybody could come and eat, and the church paid for that catered lunch. If you'd walk in that church, you'd be greeted in the foyer. It was the kind of church that was warm. It was the kind of church that was loving. It was the kind of church that you couldn't get in without a hug. It was the kind of church that had a variety of things happening in the community, but a church that was very intentional about reaping. Now, I don't recommend that many evangelistic meetings a year, but my point is, that the preached word transforms lives and evangelistic work changes lives. Evangelism, page 17, evangelistic work opening the scriptures to others. Warning men and women of what's coming upon the word is to occupy more and still more time of God's servants. If you believe that Ellen White is a prophet of God, she says evangelistic work must occupy more and more time of God's servants. Now the last key that we're going to finish up with in the next few minutes. What time is it right now? 11.57, okay, we can finish up with this one in the next five to ten minutes. Nurturing. When a church is revived, equipped and trained to serve, when a church is reaching out in community outreach and evangelism and people are baptized, nurturing of both old and new members becomes vitally important. What is nurture? Nurture is the integration of new believers into the community of faith through an emphasis on personal devotional life, corporate worship, fellowship, and witness. So what is nurture? It's integrating these new believers so that they have a personal devotional life, helping them know how. Integrating them into the importance of corporate worship, fellowship, and witness. When people accepted Christ in the New Testament and they understood his word and were baptized, they were integrated into a nurturing body of believers. The book of Acts describes their experience in these words. What happened to the people that were baptized on the day of Pentecost? Were they simply baptized and then left to struggle on their own? Look, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Well, this is great. The apostles' doctrine, they, these people that were baptized, you can't, continually you can't continue in something that you don't know. You get it? Somebody asked earlier about baptism. Well, look, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They must have known it ahead of time because you can't continue unless you know it. But, so they were reinforced that doctrine. There was fellowship, that's love, warmth, breaking of bread, that's eating with one another in the community meals, prayers together. Growing churches nurture believers. Follow-up of the interest generated by public evangelism is an ongoing part of the church's effective evangelistic outreach. Churches grow when new converts are nurtured and taught to witness. My friend Paul Ratsara is the president of the Southern African Indian Ocean Division. Southern Africa is baptizing, has been baptizing as many or more people than any division in the world. When you baptize like 150,000 new believers a year in a given division, 200,000 people a year, you have a real challenge for growth. When you baptize 3,000, 4,000 people in an evangelistic campaign, I've been in that division 
uh, recently we were in South Africa a couple of years ago, actually, and we baptized 1,900, some almost 1,000 on one day. And so, the, so Paul Ratsara, the president of the division, had to come up with something. I mean, when you baptize 3,000 in a day, what happens to those people the day after you baptize them? So this is what Pastor Ratsara came up with, and I absolutely love it. I'm going to incorporate it some here in the United States. We baptized 1,000 people in a day in South Africa in the stadium. We had 20,000 people that were out to the stadium that day. The next day, on Sunday morning, all of the new believers were brought to one of our largest churches in the area. They were given a Bible, they were given a set of Bible studies, and they were taken through a three-hour witness class the day after they were baptized. It's called Fishers of Men. You baptize them on a Sabbath, and on a Sunday morning, you teach them to witness. The results are remarkable. There was a man that came to our meetings in a wheelchair. He had been shot in South Africa in the back, paralyzed from his waist down. He was in a very violent criminal area. He was carried into the baptismal pool in the wheelchair and baptized on Sabbath. He came the next day to the outreach witnessing class on Sunday morning. He received his Bible. He received his uh, witnessing tools, started a small group in his home, and within a year, eight or nine of his members, uh, his family members and others were baptized. What God is doing is remarkable. So when I baptize 20, 30 people in an evangelistic campaign, 40, 50, we're going to bring them the next day to a witnessing class. We're going to teach them all about what Adventism is all about, bring all of our new believers after a major campaign, and get them witnessing the very next day. You say, well, they don't know enough. They don't know enough? Jesus told the demoniacs. The demoniacs said, Lord, we want to go to school with your disciples. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, no. Go home and tell how great things the Lord has done for you. When men and women accept the truth, we're not to go away and leave them and have no further burden for them. They're to be looked after. So nurture, evangelism. We do not dip them and drop them. We immerse them and instruct them. Our love for Jesus leads us to a deep concern about spiritual growth in new believers. As new believers develop their prayer life and a devotional life through Bible study and become actively involved in witness, they grow spiritually. I wanted to give you just one little thing. Um, I've got some principles that will anchor new believers in their faith. If they develop a meaningful devotional life, if they're equipped to serve, if they're involved in ministry to others, in other words, if they follow those five keys. If the new believers become actively involved in sharing Christ, if they develop a network within the church of friends. Here's what I'd like to leave you with. Churches are reborn when they teach, follow, and implement the following. They're, here's reborn. You know, I love to see a church that's reborn. Love to see a church that has the new birth. If they follow and implement revival strategies of prayer, Bible study, and witness. If they equip members to reach the community through Bible-based ministries and outreach. If they do reaping through evangelistic meetings and personal, if they nurture events for new believers. Churches, indeed, are reborn. I'm going to leave you with that today. Now, tomorrow, we're going to talk about how a church can take these principles and particularly apply them to health ministry and how a church can be a dynamic center of health ministry outreach. I don't want you to be last in line when you eat, so we're going to pray and I'm going to send you there. I'll keep this up on the screen. That's fine. 
But I want to pray with you. So anybody that wants to go can go. We'll have more questions tomorrow. Father, thank you so much for Jesus' plan in the book of Acts. Send us out on fire to proclaim his love and grace to others. In Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.